You are listening to Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press. Hello and welcome to episode six of Radicals in Conversation. I'm Neda and today I'm joined by Harim Ghani. Hi everyone, um, I'm Harim. I'm the Women's Officer for the National Union of Students and also a third year history student at King's. So today we're here to discuss sexual harassment and violence, which I guess you could say has been one of the big topics of 2017, in particular in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. I guess I'd ask you, do you think we're seeing a major shift in how we understand sexual harassment and violence and the normalisation of it? Or do you think that the scandal has revealed that we view it as some sort of open secret? I think uh, when we're talking about the issue of, you know, what's going on in Hollywood right now and actually what's going on with broader society and politics and Trump, um, the reality is that it has been an open secret for a very long time. It's just about more and more people feeling empowered enough to come forward and realising that it's so pervasive and the fact that there are so many women who've been through it. I was actually uh, meeting a women's officer at Bristol, uh, Sally Patterson, and she mentioned that actually when she has conversations with her mum and grandmother, they said the very same thing, that they had these experiences that they were, you know, they faced sexual harassment as young women. Um, so I think there's something to be said about there being some sort of strength in numbers, about people feeling now that they can come forward because there's so many other people that they aspire to, so many role models that they have. Um, and I think particularly the fact that, you know, you have so many celebrities who are coming forward and, you know, not necessarily disclosing their experiences, but simply using the hashtag MeToo as a way of like trying to highlight how pervasive it is and how rampant it is in our society has definitely um, allowed for people, particularly younger women, to come forward um, and kind of take ownership of something that they think essentially takes agency away from them. So I read an article in The Guardian recently saying that the media may not be the worst offender, but they should be the best responder to these allegations. What would you say to that? I think accountability when it comes to media accountability is something that's really, really important. And I think um, in the past, what we've seen is often you have um, survivors, predominantly women coming forward. And instead of people actually giving them the benefit of doubt and saying, okay, we need to believe them or we need to keep an open mind. What we've had is the media reinforcing stereotypes of them being gold diggers or them wanting attention or them wanting something from, you know, this powerful man um, or X, Y and Z reasons. Um, So I think definitely when we're talking about the issue of media accountability, I think uh, particularly in relation to sexual harassment, actually a lot of different things like even when we think about hate crime and so forth, I think the media does have a lot to answer for in terms of how they hold people in positions of power accountable for their actions and in terms of how they express solidarity with survivors and with other people. Um, Yeah. So as more and more people come forward and share their stories, there's been some, in my opinion, valid concerns expressed about whose voices we listen to and why. What would you say to people who are questioning the focus on celebrities and people like that? I think that's a really, really good point to raise, actually, because when we talk about the Me Too campaign, I know that it's gotten a lot of traction over the last few a few you know, months and so forth. But actually, the, the campaign itself was championed by a black woman 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, it was uh, the campaign was founded as a way of empowering women of colour who were survivors as a way to get them to come forward. Um, and yet it didn't gain the traction that it did. It was only when we had celebrities and, you know, celebrities who conform to that, um, you know, image of what the perfect victim looks like. And when I talk about the perfect victim, I'm talking about, you know, white, cis, um, you know, um, heterosexual women coming forward and then being allowed and afforded that status. Whereas 
say, women of colour, for example, they aren't necessarily afforded that victimhood to begin with. You know, they're always sexualized, I think, in particular in society. So to a certain extent, when they do come forward, the implication is that they are to blame for it. And I think definitely when we're talking about sexual harassment, this is an issue that exists anyway. Like survivors coming forward are always blamed for it. But I think it's definitely a bigger issue when we're talking about those from marginalised groups and marginalised identities, particularly LGBT women coming forward, particularly lesbian women who come forward about their experiences. So no, I think this conversation about who's allowed to be the victim is a really, really good one to have. And I think Travis Alabanza, who's a friend of mine, actually addressed this as well Mm -hmm. about the fact that queer bodies, about the fact that black and brown bodies aren't afforded that status. And um, it's actually other people who are. And it's only when they come forward that we start having these conversations that should have been had a long time ago. And I think you definitely see it um, captured in this Me Too campaign where Mm -hmm. you had a black woman champion this initiative, you know, 10 years ago. And it's only now become a mainstream thing. When we're also talking about the question of, um, you know, uh, marginalised identities coming forward, there's also a question of what is perceived as harassment to begin with. So recently I've been working on the experiences of Muslim women, particularly those who wear the hijab and the niqab, and the kind of harassment they experience in public spaces and the way that, you know, they're often physically attacked and verbally attacked, but it isn't perceived as harassment to begin with. And I think when we're talking about, when we're having that conversation, particularly about, you know, what constitutes sexual harassment or what constitutes, um, you know, gendered harassment and things like that, we need to talk about it in a broader sense. We need to talk about it in the way that, say, you know, a queer women experience it in the way that, uh, for example, Muslim women experience in public spaces. So, for example, mm-hmm. when we have things like Reclaim the March, we're talking about women's access to public spaces, but we don't specifically talk, we talk about it, you know, sexual harassment in a broader sense. We talk about gendered um, harassment in a broader sense, but we don't talk about the specific experiences of, say, those women of colour or of those Muslim women who wear the hijab or the niqab, who, who you know, are much more likely to face Islamophobic attacks. I mean, for example, um, there is that gendered element there, right? Like 60% of the attacks that take place, Islamophobic attacks that take place are targeted towards Muslim women specifically and no one talks about that yeah i think that's a really important point and um just going back to what you said about what constitutes sexual harassment i've been thinking about the fact that you know obviously it's really important that we dedicate the conversation to the varying degrees and like sexual violence in particular but i mean what would you say when people kind of say that at the moment by focusing on what people deem to be minor acts of sexual harassment that it takes away from people who truly are experiencing sexual violence like because I, I personally think obviously the lines between consent and abuse are very blurred and it's not as simple as that yeah I think there needs to be a conversation about the attitudes that we have that allow for things to go um, unchallenged so when we're talking about yes serious um, you know serious cases of sexual harassment such as rape and violence we need to know what kind of attitudes lead to that and I think so much of it is because of those blurred lines that exist because people have no understanding of the fact that you can't do x or y or z or you can't behave in a particular way and all of this feeds into these actions actually taking place and these serious assaults taking place so it's like if we begin to challenge it from the very beginning if we start having those conversations from the very beginning then I think it won't allow for those things to be as pervasive as it is to a certain extent yeah definitely I agree um it would be great if you could tell us a bit about your work as MUS Women's Officer um so in 2010 the NUS Women's Campaign carried out a survey called the Hidden Mark Survey and essentially it was trying to gather how pervasive sexual harassment and um, assault was on campuses I think we got 2,000 responses um, and from that we found that one in seven women had experienced some form of serious sexual harassment or violence or during their time at university two in three had um, experienced other forms of harassment be it verbal um, harassment or physical harassment so this was things like groping um you know in nightclubs and so forth people like following them home and so forth things that are are essentially deemed to be less serious, but I do think are serious um, regardless. And off the back of that, we basically started um, lobbying universities and institutions, particularly higher education institutes, to do more with regards to tackling sexual harassment. The reality is that it has taken a lot of time and effort and we're still having that conversation. Even like literally a week ago, I was, you know, at a conference about 
how do you tackle sexual harassment in higher education? And, you know, when we think back to the fact that this report came out in 2010, it's been like seven years, now going to be eight years um, in a few months' time. So it's a conversation that's still happening and universities don't really know how to deal with it. So off the back of that, what we did was we did another bit of research um, on uh, the kind of culture that exists, um, what kind of attitudes allow for this to manifest in universities and colleges. And that's when we had the Lad Culture Report that came out, which was that we often saw particular societies on campus, sports societies in particular, kind of perpetuating these behaviours, whereby you have this kind of pack mentality that exists within sports societies, where they go out and consume like heavy uh, heavy um, alcohol and go on to basically make derogatory comments, such as homophobic comments, sexist comments, you know, racist comments. And that kind of fuels this atmosphere where it, whereby it's normalised in our, our educational spaces and in our extracurricular lives and so forth. And since then, we've had a lot of strategies that have been put together. So we've had um, the consent workshops that came out, which was seeking to address these attitudes because a lot of these university students who come into universities actually haven't had um, adequate sex and relationship education in the first place. And consent workshops were a way of addressing that and kind of getting them to talk about consent in a meaningful way. We now have bystander intervention, which um, which has been championed by a lot of universities, particularly University of West England, which is a way of actually empowering students and bystanders to intervene in a situation if they see something occurring. Because I think one of the thing, things that came out from our research was that if there was an instance taking place on a night out, a lot of people would see it happening, but won't, wouldn't do anything about it. Like not just simply intervening, but just simply getting the right support for that person in question. And now, a few years later, <laughs> what we're doing in, in terms of my role um, is um, we've launched the Student Staff Misconduct Survey along with the 1752 group. And just to give some context to those people who are listening who don't know much about the 1752 group, it was founded by survivors, um, who, you know, PhD students and postgraduate students from Goldsmiths. And um, they were actually embroiled in a case against a series of a number of lecturers who were essentially harassing their students and getting away with it. And as a result, they formed because they realised that universities simply didn't have policies to address student staff sexual harassment. They had stuff to do with student on student issues. And even that was, you know, inadequate. But they had absolutely nothing to do with um, students staff sexual harassment so for example now one in three institutions I think still don't have policies on student staff sexual harassment and I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that the governing body for all institutions which is universities UK hasn't actually provided that kind of leadership in that direction so last year they uh, released the changing the culture report which was meant to be you know a series of policies and um, you know them sharing a series of best practices from around institutions in the country about how you adequately deal with sexual harassment how you provide survivor support how you hold perpetrators to account what kind of educational measures you implement what kind of training measures you implement for students and staff but there was absolutely nothing on student staff issues Um, and right now I think everyone is relying on the data from the student staff misconduct to come out for us to see how pervasive it is number one but now what do we do to lobby institutions to actually introduce those um, those guidelines and those policies and for it to actually mean something because I think it's one thing having those policies in place it's another actually for them to be meaningful and for people on the ground to be engaging with them particularly students because what we see often is that universities will introduce these policies and will say you know we've done x y and z but actually when a student comes forward or a staff member comes forward and puts forward a complaint it can take up to a year for them to actually see any results in the first place Um, and that process is so elongated that it actually leaves a lot of survivors feeling disempowered so what you have is them either dropping out of their studies or just withdrawing their complaint in the first Mm -hmm. place and this is something that I know has happened because in my first year as women's officer I had people coming forward and 
it took, you know, months and months. It took a whole year for there to be some sort of justice. And even when there was, you know, finally they reached a conclusion and verdict, it didn't really have much of an impact. The person in question who was perpetuating that behavior didn't really have any, he was just given kind of a slap on the wrist and that was it. Like, it was very much like, okay, we've had this issue. This has been dealt with. We've had a talking to him and that's it. There was nothing. There was no sense of accountability. There was no, and not just that, it was that there was no support afforded to the survivor in the first place. So throughout the whole experience when, you know, they have to relive that trauma, they have to describe it to several different people. They have to go in front of the person who's actually, you know, sometimes harass them and actually give that testimony in front of that person. It can be a very disempowering process and it can take agency away from them. So I think, yeah, when we're talking about issues that exist on campuses, we have to think about it in a holistic sense. We have to think about what survivor care is there and not simply in terms of, you know, uh, welfare support. So that's, you know, counselling services and so forth, but actually in terms of their physical health, um, in terms of um, their academic support, what are they being afforded? So some universities don't even have it in their policies to actually um, make sure that it's considered an extenuating circumstance so they're not allowed to get extensions or interrupt and for international students that's an even bigger issue because if they do interrupt then there's an issue with their visa um and so sorry it's just such a huge issue and i don't i think right now as it exists a lot of universities are ill-equipped to deal with that conversation Mm -hmm. and what they're doing is rather than actually going you know to independent um sexual harassment advisors and getting the support that they all need you know consulting um the kind of experts in the field they very much just decide that they're going to pick someone from a department who has no idea um you know how to deal with issues of sexual harassment and sexual violence and just train them up on it and expect them to deal with it but the reality is that they're so out of touch they don't have an understanding of how to deal with survivor support they have no understanding of accountability measures they have no understanding of what criminal investigation also looks like and and so forth So this gap that you're pointing to in terms of policies and lack of support for survivors in higher education, obviously this can be considered as like an extension of wider society and how we treat sexual harassment and the care we give to survivors. Um, But what would you say makes sexual harassment so pervasive in higher education? I think there's a number of issues and I think I think we can't see higher education in isolation to society as a whole. So the reality is when I talk about, say, for example, low reporting rates in higher education to do with sexual harassment, uh, we see that reflected in um, everyday life. We know for a fact that 80% of survivors don't actually come forward to the police. And why is that, right? Mm-hmm. It's because there is that culture that exists where, like, whereby they don't feel empowered enough to come forward or the fact that they think that the process itself is so elongated that they don't want to go through that. Um, so I think, yes, whilst it's good to have conversation about higher education on its own, it's more meaningful not to detach it from wider society as a whole. Uh, but I think like broadly when we're talking about sexual harassment in higher education there is issue of and I kind of briefly touched upon this about sex and relationship education in primary school in secondary school and colleges mm-hmm. and the reality is that it is completely inadequate so for example there was a research that was conducted which found that 50% of LGBT students had never even learned about same-sex um, relationships um, you have people again like not learning about basic things such as consent what it is and people are coming in you know not knowing not understanding that and then institutions kind of sometimes particularly with Freshers' Week, not realising that it's such a pertinent issue and the fact that students have no understanding of what constitutes X, Y and Z and then allowing it for, to, to go unchallenged, particularly with their advertising, feeding into a lot of, I think, gendered tropes as well. Yeah. I think there's also a conversation to be had about the marketization of education that's taking place. And we have a lot of institutions acting like corporations where they want to protect their reputation and they're acting like big businesses and essentially higher reporting rates will impact their reputation. They Mm -hmm. will be, obviously, they will find themselves in the press. Um, It will have a direct impact in the number of applicants that they receive. And for universities that rely on applications to kind of 
continue on, it can be an issue when you address this situation head on and actually say, yes, we've got a problem. So I think Graham Toll in particular, Graham Towell, sorry, is a, is a lecturer at Durham University and he talks about high reporting rates. And he says a lot of institutions would rather than not address the issue of sexual harassment and introduce adequate policies because they think, okay, once we do so, we'll have a high reporting rate. And as a result, then institutions and the media will, you know, find out about this and this will have a kind of knock-on effect in terms of our reputation but also I think moving on from that we have an issue when we're talking about student staff harassment about universities prioritizing the kind of uh, reputation of a lecturer and the mm-hmm. income grant that they bring in as opposed to the welfare of a student so say a survivor was to come forward and say well this professor has done x y and z some universities and some institutions would kind of have a backroom deal with that lecturer and essentially said to them these allegations have come forward against you um, we're willing to pay you off take this money and we won't investigate it so your your reputation will be called into question and that that lecturer will then be allowed to take that money and go on and move on to an, another institution and continue on that cycle of abuse so they continue to have their reputation the university continues to say well you know this person was a visiting professor here and as a result gained the traction that they need but in, in that process that survivor those survivors are a increasing and secondly they're not receiving the justice that they need yeah and i think <laughs> yeah. that's where it's important to make the kind of links to the weinstein scandal and not discuss what happened in isolation because obviously what we're seeing here is again an abuse of power absolutely really yeah. huge degree of entitlement yeah. um so yeah i think that's really important yeah absolutely and I think yeah like particularly when we're talking about the correlations between what's happening in Hollywood and what's happening in higher education it's that you know that kind of cult that exists around certain people and um you know again this this kind of impact survivors coming forward at first hand because what you have is this this figure you know there's a cult figure and um everyone loves them and everyone adores them and they have this huge reputation and if someone was to come forward then they would be seen as a problem rather than the problem itself so rather than being like okay you know he did he or she did x y and z it would be what are you trying to do why are you trying to ruin their career what is the motivation here so we're obviously seeing a lot of women coming together um having a sense of community and solidarity with one another uh what do you think male allies can do to help and what can be unhelpful i think first realizing what resources you have at your disposal can be quite helpful so I'm just going to give an example of what I found to be extremely helpful when I was yeah. doing my work around sexual harassment so essentially when I when I when I came forward and I said I wanted to do this work on sexual harassment about you know looking at student staff misconduct but actually you know a broader attitudes that existed and how we tackle them I had um, someone from from NUS Ali Milani he's the vice president of um, union development and he has far more funds than I do uh, because I'm a liberation officer and he's the vice president so he was willing to allocate me a portion of his budget and be like actually we need need to have a conversation about why these attitudes are allowed to flourish in, in you know, um, student societies, particular sports societies. And he wanted to put together workshops looking at things like gender norms and toxic masculinity and how that kind of perpetuates the cycle of sexual harassment. And he was thinking, well, often what we have is these conversations about sexual harassment being simply reduced to those women who've experienced it and simply being reduced to feminist societies and so forth. But we need to make sure that we're targeting those groups who are actually perpetuating that, no? Um, so yeah, he, he came forward and he essentially just put aside this money and said, you can use it to do whatever you want and I'll support you in the process to do so. And I think it's about recognising that, yeah, like recognizing your influence and recognizing what you can bring to the table um i think it's also on a more general sense it's about just 
creating an environment whereby people feel empowered enough to actually disclose those instances to you and for you to be able to legitimize them and for you to be like actually your experience are completely valid and I'm not going to question that um, whatsoever yeah. and I think that's on a personal note but if you have that position of authority using that to in a way that can benefit survivors and I think I see people like Ali Milani actually Graham Towell as well using that so you know Graham Towell was the first person who got Durham University to actually take the issue of sexual harassment very seriously mm -hmm. and because he had a lot of experience in that field he brought in a lot of people so he consulted with survivors and he allowed them to shape um, what their sexual harassment guidance looked like what survivor support would look like for Durham University that's kind of I, what I would say would be helpful I think in terms of what isn't helpful is whenever women survivors come forward kind of flipping that conversation and saying actually it's an issue for men as well I think that that is not helpful at all no. um, just because women coming forward doesn't invalidate the experiences of male survivors and it never has and I think whenever survivors do come forward particularly women survivors they do talk about they have a general conversation about the way in which patriarchy harms you know all of society it, the way that it perpetuates certain gender norms and the way it perpetuates this idea of toxic masculinity which doesn't allow for men to be seen as or perceived as victims mm -hmm. um, so I think yeah I think you know I think this is quite a obvious thing to say but yeah I think it's really helpful to remember that yeah I think what's also not helpful is when men think of Harvey Weinstein as kind of this big bad monster and don't see any of him in either themselves or their friends or yeah. just people just generally men in their communities and people around them when we're talking about issues of sexual harassment and perpetrators, we yeah. think about them like in binary. So we think about this big bad figure who did X, Y, and Z and realizing actually, it's usually not the, you know, this person who is inherently evil. It's someone who's your friend. It's someone who's in your family that you know. And yeah. how do you challenge those behaviors when you see your friends doing it? Because mm -hmm. often, yes, it's easier to call out a stranger or call out someone else. But when it's in your own friends perpetuating that behavior, that's when we see people don't take action. Mm -hmm. And that's when they allow for it to fester. I think it's not helpful to see perpetrators as people who are these big, bad, um, horrible people because at essentially creates that sense of distance between you and them mm -hmm. and it's about recognizing the fact that it can be it can be your friend it can be you actually um and it is it is to do also with that process of socialization in which we've allowed for these attitudes to fester in which we've allowed for this to be so normalized that everyone does it and sometimes they don't even actually realize that they're doing it until and they have to go through that process of unlearning to recognize what it is that they've done mm -hmm. um yeah so what connections do you think we can make between NUS work and work on campuses and grassroots movements in the wider world? Um, I think, um, and I kind of briefly touched upon this before, it's about creating those relationships and those networks between institutions, so higher education institutes or further education colleges, and actual charities that exist on the ground. So you have groups like Imkan, you have groups like a Rape Crisis that deal with frontline training, that deal with, you know, um, survivor support, that deal with first respondent training. Um, and we don't have, you know, um, institutions tapping into that. And actually, it can be quite a mutually beneficial relationship because what you have is then institutions and organisations like the NUS kind of giving them the resources that they need usually financial resources and then um, those charities actually giving them the expertise and the knowledge that they need which a lot of institutions don't actually have to begin with and that's part of the reason like I was saying so many of the policies that we have are so unhelpful and there are so many gaps that exist and a lot of people conducting x y and z in institutions don't actually know what they're doing to begin with so um, for example you don't just have like general ones when I was talking about Imkan you, uh, you know you have specialist ones so um, groups that deal with specialist survivor support so Imkan looks at I think women of colour and uh, particularly marginalised women and how you engage with them and how you create a, a support network for them so for example when we're talking about counselling services providing something that's culturally competent because particularly survivors of colour will find it more helpful to come forward when they have those kind of organisations as opposed to like a generic uh, organisation like Rape Crisis so we're coming to the end of the podcast. I thought it would be good to hear from you on 
what you think we can do to make this moment matter and ensure it's not reduced to like a media frenzy as it's being referred to? I think first keeping up with the momentum around it, um, because I think we see this a lot where people will create noise about something and then it will die down. And um, I think we saw this happen with Grenfell where people were outraged for a month and then within like the next few weeks, no one was talking about it and keeping that pressure up and building that pressure up. And part of that is actually getting together and building those organizing spaces and lobbying your institutions to do X, Y, and Z. You see a lot of um, students, for example, doing this in their institutions where if they see something that's happening, that's not okay, they'll get together, they'll formulate a campaign. So, um, you know, this is kind of removed from talking about the issue of sexual harassment. But for example, you have at King's College London, you have this campaign demilitarized kings which is a lot of students feeling disengaged with their institution for investing in arms corporations and so forth so they came together and they have this campaign and every so every week or so they have rallies and they get more people involved and it's about making sure that momentum continues and making sure that we're building something and like mm-hmm. a, a, and a, a building a project that actually has an end goal because i think sometimes what we have particularly in the student movement is we have people creating noise about something but actually not knowing what the end goal is so making sure you have your list of demands set out and making sure you know exactly what it is that you want from your institution when you go into it and again I think going back um, realizing that there are those networks that already exist and tapping into those networks and using them to help you for example you know with demilitarized kings making sure that you tap into different groups like BDS networks that exist and asking them for support so that you have a stronger collective voice that actually emerges and you actually have a more powerful voice essentially Mm. um, because there is strength in numbers. Yeah and I think that's really important that if you're joining in on the conversation like recognizing that people have paved the way for you and worked really hard and absolutely yeah um so yeah just to let you know we are currently conducting our student staff misconduct survey and if you go on the nus website you will find a link to that it takes 15 minutes or so and we're also actually running focus groups with different identity groups so we have a focus group specifically for women of color we have um, focus groups for queer women we have focus groups for specialist institutions so our institutions and drama academies where we think that this is far more uh, pervasive than other institutions and do get involved in that we are extending the deadline for the survey till um, the new year so you do have time to participate in the focus groups if you want or the survey itself and just to uh, let you know that all the data will be anonymized um, so your name won't be mentioned at any point and off the back of that we're hoping that we will have a conference where we can invite academics but also students because what we have a lot of the time is we have conferences to do with technical sexual harassment that completely remove students that don't allow for students to interact and actually engage and to actually have access um, to those spaces to begin with so what we want to do is create a, create a conference and create a space where we have that meaningful relationship and that dialogue emerge between academics who are actually you know introducing all these policies and students in terms of what they want to see happening from their institutions um yeah well thank you so much to harim for coming on today it's great to have you on um we hope you enjoyed this podcast and have a good christmas and new year you've been listening to radicals and conversation a podcast from pluto press We'd like to thank our special guest, Harim Ghani, for joining us. For more information about the Staff Student Sexual Misconduct Survey, go to nus.org.uk.